Hello and welcome to SAEM's podcast series, Current and Novel Approaches to Sepsis Detection in the Emergency Department. This series is sponsored in part by Beckman Coulter and Bio Mariu. In today's episode, we are speaking with Dr. Nathan Shapiro, Vice Chairman of Emergency Medicine Research at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Professor of Emergency Medicine at Harvard Medical School. He received his medical degree from Temple University School of Medicine and completed an internship year in transitional medicine at Cook County Hospital, followed by residency in emergency medicine at the Harvard-affiliated emergency medicine program. Dr. Shapiro also has a master's degree in public health and clinical effectiveness research from the Harvard School of Public Health. His areas of interest include translational research, sepsis in the emergency department, and emergency department research program development and management. Dr. Shapiro has an international reputation in the diagnosis and treatment of sepsis and has been active in creating links between critical care and emergency medicine. He's published more than 200 original articles, including in JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine, and PLOS One. He lectures nationally and internationally on the approach to diagnosis and treatment of sepsis in the emergency department, and he has received multiple grants from multiple funding agencies from including the National Institutes of Health, Department of Defense, and multiple industry sponsors. As part of his research portfolio, he serves as a principal investigator and liaison with the FDA for companies seeking new indications for biomarkers and devices. His unique insight and working knowledge of the healthcare environment positions him to provide advice spanning from research expertise to clinical practice insight. And hello, I'm Dr. Robert Ehrman. I'm one of the research faculty at Wayne State University. And welcome, Dr. Shapiro. Thank you so much for joining us today to share your insights and knowledge about sepsis detection in the emergency department. Thanks for having me, Rob. As a member for SAM for over 20 years, it's a pleasure to be here. Also, just for full transparency, let's get some disclosures out of the way. I want to disclose that I have research funding from the NIH, CDC, as well as from industry sponsors such as Luminos, BioMariu, Inflamatics, and I'm also a consultant for Prognosis and Diagnostic Robotics. So those are the disclosures that may or may not be relevant for today. All right. So what we're going to talk about today is uh, sort of start with this some of the ideas around it, ideas surrounding uh, screening for sepsis in the ED, sort of where we've been where we are and where we're going and so to start off i guess the most basic question would be you know we talk about screening for a lot of different diseases in particular sepsis and the term gets thrown around a lot but when you say screening for sepsis what factors do you consider when screening for sepsis in particular kind of like patient level factors system level factors and then i guess on top of that sort of when and why do you screen for sepsis Great, so maybe we can just set a base for the conversation. In emergency medicine, as we all know in general, a key question we're trying to answer is, is the patient sick, right? And so is the patient in front of me sick, number one? What are they sick from, number two? And what am I gonna do about it, number three? So when I think about screening, that's kind of how I tend to tackle it, which is, is the person sick, first and foremost? So what are the things that we put into that? We look at the person themselves. So the kind of pre-acute event conditions, such as are they old? Do they have diabetics? Are they frail? Do they have diabetes? Are they frail, et cetera? Then we say, what's the illness they have? How to consider that in? Is it a simple UTI or is it a multifocal pneumonia? 
And then we dive a bit deeper to say, how's their body responding? In other words, how are their organs responding? Are their organs starting to shut down or is everything doing well? So in general, screening is very broad. And we really want to think about, are they sick? And I call that prognosis. And then the second question is, what are they sick from? Are they sick from an infection or not? And so when we talk about screening, I think just to distill it down, we're really trying to answer those two questions, which is if we're focused on sepsis, are they sick from an infection that's making them ill? And how is their body responding and how are they likely to do? Which is, is their body in a severe state of dysfunction where they're going to do poorly? Or is it something where a simple dose of antibiotics will treat them and they'll do just fine? So that's kind of a a basic primer, but happy to dive a bit deeper. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's sort of the, I think, as you said, the way that we think about sort of all patients and, you know, within the sort of the setting of infection, when you think about screening for sepsis or when you talk about it, I guess the simplest question is when you see a patient and, and they have maybe pneumonia, I mean, in your mind, are you specifically thinking like, does this patient have quote sepsis and are you using that, whether it's like an internal dialogue, are you running through something in your mind to help you determine what the next steps are in treatment, whether this is like which antibiotics, what other treatments, like admission discharge, that kind of thing? Yeah, no, it's, it's great. So there's kind of a historical perspective, which in 1992, Roger Bone and a, and a group of people did something that was both, I would say, a blessing and a curse for sepsis in general, which is they defined it. So the good news is in 1992, the definition systemic inflammatory response or SIRS, sepsis, severe sepsis, septic shock, those terms were created. So the good part of that is that it created a definition so that they said, look, when we're talking about sepsis, it's two or more inflammatory response criteria plus a suspected infection, that's sepsis. Severe sepsis is broadly organ dysfunction. Septic shock is you're now hypotensive. And so these definitions were great because it unified the field. The only downside is the definitions are imperfect because sepsis is such a complex entity and it's so hard to capture precisely what one physician means. So broadly, we want to know, are you sick from an infection? But putting definitions to that was a little hard. So the SERS criteria emerged as something that was good because it unified the field, bad because the definition, especially in the emergency department, is probably overly sensitive and not specific enough, meaning an eight-year-old with an ear infection can be febrile and tachycardic and meet the definition of SIRS and sepsis, but not necessarily be sick. So there's been revisions or attempts to revise those definitions along the way because this oversensitivity. Now, the other good thing before I move to more recent definitions, the other good thing about those criteria is they're easy to capture. So you can set up, computers can set up screening criteria in the emergency department to capture every patient with SIRS and confirms and bells. The problem is, again, probably overly sensitive and not specific enough. So there's a more, a more recent attempt to introduce new sepsis criteria, and this is where QSOFA and the use of SOFA score came from. So SOFA score, as everyone may or may not know, is based around organ dysfunction and its definitions of organ dysfunction. QSOFA was an abbreviated approach to SOFA that's more applicable in the emergency department. So when these definitions were introduced, another way to screen for sepsis or to define sepsis, it turns out the definitions are probably less sensitive and more specific. 
Now, are they better? It depends on the use case and it depends on the patient. So really with QSOFA, we're trading one definition that was more sensitive and less specific, SIRS and sepsis criteria, for one that's more specific and less sensitive. The problem is at the end of the day, we're trying to capture, is a patient sick? So to answer your question more specifically, what do I do? I try and kind of put it all together. I stratify the two questions, diagnosis, is the patient sick from an infection? And prognosis, how sick is the patient? How much organ dysfunction do they have? Because that's a good proximate measure for sickness. And so I see a patient, I think about how susceptible are they to being sick? What's their underlying causes? Are they frail? Are they old? Are they from a nursing home? What do I see in front of me? What are their vital sign abnormalities? And I'll also look at their lab abnormalities. Do they have renal dysfunction? Do they have oxygen requirements? Are their platelets low? And personally, I just put that whole picture to see the patient. So I don't personally tend to use a specific criteria. I'd also like to mention the new score, National Early Warning Score, something that's almost uniformly moved and used in England. It's also another risk stratification score for the emergency department. You know, all of these are imperfect. I think you need to use something. I think we need to be thinking in general those two questions, infection, yes, no, sick, yes, no, and then the way you arrive or assess the sickness of a patient, there's multiple ways to get to that same problem or to that same conclusion. Yeah, I like that approach, and I think it's something that a lot of clinicians use, certainly myself, and that's been my experience across you know different EDs where I've worked, and it's definitely interesting and comforting to hear someone who's a you know an international expert in sepsis give their endorsement to using clinical gestalt. I think these scoring systems, particular SOFA, are useful from the research standpoint because there does need to be some way to benchmark severity of illness, and SOFA is pretty good with that. But, you know, sort of moving on towards another topic that I wanted to discuss was biomarkers. You mentioned the that many of these, you know, screening criteria, SIRS, QSOFA, NEWS, they identify or they potentially identify patients who are not, quote, septic. And so as we think about ways to improve upon the sort of recognition, particularly early recognition, right? I mean, it's not a stretch for clinicians to recognize, you know, an older patient comes in from a nursing home and they're febrile and they're hypotensive and they have a folium that has scary looking urine coming out, right? Those aren't the patients that we're struggling to identify and treat appropriately. It's kind of some of those patients that are more in the maybe earlier phases or not quite as obvious clinically that they're starting to get pretty sick from an infection. And so one of the areas of research that we were kind of hoping you could talk about a little bit is biomarkers. And again, this is a term that I think gets thrown around a lot to different types of molecules, things like lactate, CRP, monocyte distribution with selectins. This is a really diverse group of molecules. And so something that I was would like to hear your thoughts on would be sort of, again, how you think about biomarkers, kind of are they all the same? Or I guess they're not all the same type of molecule, but is the general use and application of them the same in, in that we're trying to get diagnostic or prognostic information from them? And are they going to sort of help us become sort of more sensitive and specific in the way we diagnose sepsis, particularly early on? Great. So first, I'd actually like to make, if, if I could take the liberty, make one comment about the clinical gestalt. 
in that I like to think about it as data-driven clinical gestalt, where you take a number of metrics and put it together to arrive at how sick you think the patient is. And what I mean by that is we have learned from SIRS that vital sign abnormalities, SIRS and common sense, vital sign abnormalities are bad. The more vital sign abnormalities, the, the probably the more critically ill the patient is. Secondarily, we've learned that organ dysfunction is bad from SOFA score and the definitions. So when I'm doing my clinical gestalt, I'll be sure to check the chemistry and look at the creatinine, check the CBC, look at the platelets, look at the respiratory function, is the patient confused, et cetera. So it's kind of saying, let's take the underlying patient, the vital signs, the labs, my exam, and also just that kind of from the door clinical appearance of the patient, put it all together to arrive at my assessment of, is the patient sick? How sick are they? And the sickness likely due to an infection? I just wanted to, to cover that. Now, biomarkers. What's the role and use of biomarkers, especially in the emergency department? At a very high kind of standing on a soapbox type level, I think that we have our clinical assessment, which I just described as to how we get to where the patient is. And then the biomarkers are measuring in the blood certain parameters that you can't see. So you can't see what the blood is doing, how the cells are responding necessarily. You can see manifestations of it. So the biomarkers are trying to attack that. But I like to think about it is you arrive to your, it's almost a two by two table. You arrive to your clinical assessment, sick first not, and then you arrive to your biomarker assessment, whatever the biomarker is, abnormal versus normal. So when the biomarker says this patient is sick, and the clinical gestalt is sick, you're probably just reaffirming things. It's not really helping you a lot. When you say healthy and the biomarkers say healthy again, it's concordant, not giving you new information. The thing comes when the biomarkers are abnormal and your clinical assessment's normal. The biomarker says this patient's sick and you say no. How do you use that information? And that's where I think you do a double click on the patient. You take a closer look at what's going on and you basically need to decide is the patient going to go to the biomarker or the biomarker going to go to the patient? In other words, is this telling you this patient's about to become more ill and you don't see it? Or is it just that the biomarkers are wrong? And that's where, since we have no perfect biomarker, it's really hard to tell. There's also vice versa. I think the patient's sick, but the biomarker says they're fine. You just have to attenuate the two. And that's where you have to really understand what the biomarker is telling you. So when we get into what's a sepsis biomarker, the bio, it depends what it's measuring. So there's inflammatory biomarkers telling you the general state of the body's information. There's immunomodulatory biomarkers, meaning is the body responding to a specific pathogen? There could be biomarkers that are going after is the patient infected or not? There's also biomarkers of organ dysfunction or endothelial cell dysfunction. So we have to understand a little bit what the biomarker is telling us and then figure out how we can integrate that into our clinical decision-making. And finally, my personal assessment is there's no single biomarker that's going to tell us everything about sepsis. What we're going to want to probably end up with is a panel of doctors that are looking to different aspects of the host response that give us a panel readout for the patient. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that it's, you know, I think we want a silver bullet or something that's going to work in the same way every time for every patient in sort of every situation. And I think that unfortunately, and especially as a lot of sepsis clinical trials over the years have, have shown us is that that certainly just doesn't exist. And so as you think about sort of panels of biomarkers, 
are there particular biomarkers that you would include in a set that you think are the most useful or potentially useful? Or are there biomarkers that you use currently in your clinical decision-making that you would sort of recommend others to use in general? You know, it's hard. I'm not going to come down to say this is the magic marker of sepsis. There's also a lot of biomarkers that, you know, there's a critical care physician, he's a surgeon, John Marshall, who once, I was at a conference, put up an abstract. And the abstract just said, we would like XX biomarker is a promising biomarker in sepsis. In our initial studies of however many hundred patients, the AUC was 0.8. The validation was 0.76 or something like this. And he said, XX is a promising new biomarker in sepsis. And he said, I've reviewed this abstract a hundred times or something like that. And we just keep filling in new biomarkers into the same abstract. How can we move forward? And, and I think a little bit that still rings true. So there's a lot of promising biomarkers. It depends how you put them in a panel. And my perfect panel would have complementary expertise. And we also have to realize that as of now, there's no magic biomarker. So ones that are popular, procalcitonin tends a little bit more towards infection or not. CRP is popular. What's interesting is in my own personal research practice, we've always used IL-6, which is currently not really commercially available. I mean, it's out there, but it's not massively used, and yet it always tends to be reliable. That said, I've done a lot of studies looking at new biomarkers, and there's a lot of overlap of information. So I'm not going to say there's a magic biomarker in my clinical practice, kind of as I described a little bit earlier, I try and pull the information available and then go from there. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear you say that. And that's uh, such an instructive anecdote, even in my career, which has been shorter than yours. I've seen a lot of things come and go. I think when I started out as like a resident in the ICU, they were activated protein C was all the rage. And that's obviously fallen by the wayside. You bring up an in, what I think is an interesting question thinking about the different biomarkers and what they mean and the complementarity. You know, the other question that I have related to that is, I think there's probably likely to be some time varying contribution of information of different biomarkers. So what, you know, biomarker A may be useful in the early stages, whereas biomarker B may become more useful in 48 to 72 hours and biomarker C may, you know, give you some longer term prognostic information. And it sort of brings up potential or need for collaboration and between ED and critical care, ED and internal medicine. I know you've, you've done some of that. And, you know, I wonder if you could, what your thoughts are in terms of future directions for research in this, I, you know, I guess related to, to this question is like, how can we uh, do we need to foster, you know, more and better collaboration with critical care colleagues to look at doing some of these studies more longitudinally? Or are there other other things you you think are kind of coming down the, you know, on the horizon for how we can, I guess, maybe use biomarkers more efficaciously or efficiently? Yeah, no, great question. So let's unpack that. So the first thing is collaboration, obviously, is important. And getting that continuity between the emergency department and critical care is always going to be helpful for the patient. The interesting thing is, what does timing mean in general? In some ways, we talk about time to antibiotics. Well, okay, so when we think about that, we say, okay, they've come through the door at midnight and they got their antibiotics at 4 a.m., so therefore it's four hours time to antibiotics. But the reality is they didn't get injected with sepsis to walk through the door at midnight. 
they became septic a couple of days sitting on their couch eating Cheetos a couple of days prior. So it's really, we're talking about this was, did they get their antibiotics at 52 hours at 4 a.m. or was there a delay till 8 a.m. when they got it at 56 hours into their septic episode? So timing is hard because we don't really, we see patients all along the continuum. Some patients present to the ED very late, others very early. So really, I think sequential biomarkers and monitoring response to therapy are also going to be an important role. In other words, are my treatments working and the patient's getting better, the biomarkers are improving, or are the biomarkers showing that the organ dysfunction or host response is getting more and more out of control and I better do something different? As far as the approach for the future, I think technology, personally, I think technology and rapid advances in the field are going to drive this in a lot of ways. Up until now, a lot of biomarker approaches have been both based on single protein biomarkers. In other words, we measure one protein and see what's the level of that is in the body. And I think directions forward are going to involve, to be honest, some of the transcriptomic approaches. And that's going to work in two ways. When you do transcriptomics, you essentially measure 30,000 mRNA transcripts. And that can inform us new biomarker targets. But there's also some companies working on getting the transcriptomics available closer to real time, in which case you could look at 100 different RNA transcripts where you're asking, how are the white cells responding to sepsis or how are the neutrophils responding to sepsis? And then you're getting a 100 transcript readout to inform you. So I think as those become closer to the clinic, there's going to be new approaches where instead of relying on one biomarker, it's multi-biomarkers. And then with machine learning and AI, we have ways where we can start to integrate that information in order to become more informative and useful. So I think that's one view to the future. The other is, I think we've seen really COVID in some ways has demonstrated up to us. If we can confirm the pathogen, then that's going to give us some information. So when we know we've confirmed the pathogen, we've confirmed COVID, that's helpful. In the bacterial world, there's new technologies. MALDI is one where we're making faster blood cultures. And the more readily available to the emergency physician the pathogen is, I think that's also going to drive our approaches forward. So as we have different techniques in order to identify the pathogen or the bacterial pathogen, that's also going to change our approaches. Okay, thanks. That's really fascinating. And I think in maybe episode two, we're going to delve a little bit deeper into sort of the AI machine learning component to it. And I really like what you said. I find that the idea of transcriptomics fascinating and something I've been thinking about lately, and maybe we'll do this, cover this question quickly, would just be, you know, as it pertains to the timing, like you said, right? Patients show up at the ED with, quote, sepsis, but of course, they didn't become septic right before they called the ambulance or got in the car to come to the ED. And, you know, essentially, we're, we sort of treat everybody the same for the most part when they show up. But of course, there are it, it, different phases in their illnesses. And I wonder if, to some extent, how that sort of influences you know, what happens to them in the, the first part of their treatment and how they respond to treatments. And so I wonder at some point if there's a, you know, there may be some opportunity to, as technology improves, to get a better idea of what the transcriptome or whatever, you know, it doesn't have to be the whole entire transcriptome, but, you know, biomarker levels or, or some sort of 
indication of the biological state that exists, you know, at baseline. So whether this is something, you know, this touches on the idea of sort of precision medicine, but if you kind of knew what the baseline transcriptome looked like in the healthy population, then the patient hits the door and you can get that same information that might help us get a better idea of where in the stage of illness they are and potentially could help inform how we sort of manage those patients? Absolutely. I think at the end of the day, we're talking, it's well recognized that heterogeneity is one of the biggest challenges in sepsis. In other words, the best parallel would be when we think about cancer or cancer drugs, it's not like we have a drug to treat cancer, or it's not like we have a staging system that stages all cancer. Instead, we have renal carcinomas with a staging system specific to renal carcinomas and drugs specific to treating renal carcinomas. So with sepsis, we're trying to come up with staging systems for all of sepsis and then drugs to treat all of sepsis. So steps towards reducing that heterogeneity is what's important. And so when we think about it, if we take something like transcriptomics or multi-marker panels, what are the ways that we can reduce the heterogeneity to better describe the really the phenotypes or subphenotypes of sepsis? Carolyn Kalfee and her group out of UCSF, amongst others, has taken the same approach with ARDS. And what they've done broadly is shown that you can reduce ARDS into two specific subphenotypes, and each subphenotype or endotype is going to respond differently. So as we can better group patients into light groups and then figure out where those patients are, where they're going, and what treatments they respond to, I think there's a real opportunity to parallel that in sepsis. Okay, well, thanks. All of that stuff is, I find fascinating. I could probably talk about this ad infinitum, but I think it's time we're going to wrap up this episode. So, Nate, if you could maybe give two or three bullet points summarizing what we've talked about, sort of the screening aspects and biomarkers that uh, you'd like people to take away from the first part of the discussion, that would be great. Sure. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we have to go back to the three core questions, perhaps one might say we we ask as an emergency physician assessing a patient, which is, how sick is the patient? Are they sick from an infection? And what am I going to do about it? And so we're really looking for biomarkers and other new technologies to help us decide that when we have to add to our information basis and add to the accuracy of our our information, our assessment, which is biomarkers to help us with the question, how sick is the patient, biomarkers to help us with the question of, is it due to an infection? And finally, what am I going to do for him? Am I sending him to the ICU? Am I giving him normal therapies? Am I giving him antivirals? So I think as we pull it together, really, we want to use biomarkers and other screening methodologies and pull from them to most accurately answer that question, these set of questions. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and hopefully you'll agree to come back for episode two. Sounds great. I look forward to it.